Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to today's episode, Dr. Carl Weiss Sr., Assassin or Not? On Sunday evening, September 8, 1935, a mild-mannered 29-year-old successful physician and family man by the name of Dr. Carl Weiss Sr. walked into the Louisiana State Capitol building in Baton Rouge to speak with the powerful and controversial Louisiana Senator Huey Long about a political matter involving Weiss's father-in-law, Judge Pavi. After a brief confrontation, shots rang out. Senator Long was mortally wounded, and Dr. Weiss lay dead as a result of 61 bullet wounds received from Long's bodyguards. Long would die two days later from his injuries, and Dr. Weiss's family, including his wife, Yvonne, and three-month-old son, Carl Weiss Jr., would be left to deal with the aftermath and the stigma as the family of the man accused of killing Senator Huey Long, who, by the way, was expected to challenge Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1936 presidential election. Our guests on this episode are Dr. Weiss's three grandchildren, Christina Weiss Terranova, Dr. Carl Weiss III, and Gretchen Weiss Dubit. They are here to share stories of how their family, given Senator Long's popularity, dealt with the fallout and the anger projected upon them after that fateful day. They will also tell us about their father, Dr. Carl Weiss Jr., and what his life was like growing up without his dad and his journey, along with other family members and a forensic expert, towards finding the evidence which they believe indicates their grandfather. We'd now like to welcome Christina, Carl, and Gretchen to our show. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm really thrilled to have all of you on and telling this amazing story, I think, that has to be told. I'd like to start off by asking Christina, what do you know about your grandfather, Dr. Carl Weiss Sr.? Where was he born? Where did he grow up? And what was he like? Well, that's what's really interesting about him is that he was all very well known as a very reserved and unassuming person. He was quite slender. He was bespectacled. And he was a physician who had no interest in politics. He was devoted to his wife, who was the former Yvonne Pavi of Opelousas, Louisiana, and his newborn baby, his Catholicism and his profession. He was born in Baton Rouge, and he earned his MD at Tulane after graduating from Louisiana State University. He had residencies at the American Hospital in Paris and Bellevue Hospital in New York City. He then returned to Louisiana to share his father's eye, ear, nose, and throat practice. He was very close with his family. Colleagues at the time marveled at his skill. He was said to be the only doctor in Baton Rouge who could take out a cancer of the larynx and make it look easy. When you said he wasn't political, uh, I think that's probably a very important thing to think about in this story. Carl, would you like to add a little bit about that? I mean, I think he was introspective. He was quiet, he was reserved. And that's what I learned from it speaking with his younger brother, Tom Ed, and I just I got a sense of his personality. I think also he had an overwhelming sense that he could speak with anybody. He, he was willing to speak with anybody about any topic. I know that was one characteristic of his personality that uh, his younger brother had mentioned to me. I think he was very intense. 
I think he questioned his Catholicism and then retraced all his understanding of his perspective on religion until he was comfortable with exactly what Catholicism represented. Then he pursued his Catholicism with great fervor. I mean, I think he was extremely well-trained. He spent time with the best of the best and learning his craft, and he was dedicated to his family. I think that's it. As far as being apolitical, it's hard to characterize it, but that's just, my dad had always said over the years, he's like, no physician has ever been implicated as being a political assassin, ever. Now, your grandfather's father, your great-grandfather was also a physician, is that correct? He was an ophthalmologist, which is my understanding, and he was elected to the Southern Surgical Association ophthalmology, you know, the president of the ophthalmology group. Um, so I think he was a surgeon's surgeon. And I think my grandfather was the same. He's characterized as a surgeon's surgeon, somebody that, you know, you want to send your family members to. He's dedicated. Gretchen, did you want to add anything to that? I think that Carl's point that there was a long line of doctors who cared for their communities. They were well known for their craft and everybody knew them as the doctors in the community from our great, great grandfather down. So it was a kind of the family, the family business is what we used to call it is being a doctor. Yeah. Deep roots, deep roots in that community. So what I wanted to talk about was setting the stage for the event that happened on September 8th, 1935. Maybe I'll start with Christina and anybody else can jump in. Can you set the stage for what was going on in your grandmother and grandfather's lives on September 8th, 1935? Okay. So by all accounts, they were having a peaceful picnic by the water somewhere by a camp. That's what they call their, um, the places that they go in the summer in Louisiana. So they were all there. My grandfather, his wife, the new baby, and my grandfather's parents were all together having a nice meal swimming, enjoying life. There was no strain or stress as far as the accounts go from that day, except when someone mentioned that possibly that night, Huey Long was going to be talking about gerrymandering Yvonne's father out of his judgeship. And supposedly my great-grandfather got upset and my grandfather said something to the effect of, don't worry, there's really nothing we can do about it. Or maybe Yvonne said that too. So the memories of that afternoon were that no one was upset, possibly my great-grandfather, but certainly not my grandfather, and certainly not upset enough to plot to murder the senator from Louisiana. So this is from an interview in 1961 given by my grandmother to David Zinman, who ended up writing a book about the um, murder. And she said, as her eyes misted over, she talked about the last day of Weiss's life, a Sunday. She recalled going to mass with him and escaping the summer heat by picnicking and swimming with their baby and Weiss's parents. When they arrived home in the evening, she said Weiss left to make a sick call. Quote, Sunday was one of the happiest days of our lives, she recounted, and Sunday night was the saddest, unquote. Well, it certainly changed their family's life and really extended family and future generations' lives. So what I hear then is that it was a pretty nice afternoon. Your grandfather was not a person who really particularly was that interested in politics. He may have heard from his father some things about your grandfather's father-in-law, Judge Pavi. Christina, you mentioned gerrymandering. My understanding of that is it's a redistricting type of a thing that happens to sort of corral and manipulate votes. 
and to get people in or out of office. Is that uh, your understanding? That is mine as well. And apparently my, I guess he would be my grandfather on the um, Pavi side was notoriously anti-Long. So Long was working to get him out of office because that's what he did. Mm. Manipulated people to his advantage. So your grandfather was more or less diffusing or trying to be the voice of calm that, all right, let's not ruin the day. Let's, uh, let's just enjoy the day. It's been a good day. Let's keep it that way. So I'd like to ask, Christine, I can start with you and then Carl and Gretchen, please jump in. What was the initial story that came out about what happened on September 8th, 1935, inside the Louisiana State Capitol in Baton Rouge? From a historical perspective? From the, I'd say the most well-known historical perspective, or certainly the initial report that came out as to what happened. That's interesting because it's a little bit debated even to this day. I mean, that's the question. We don't really know what happened. But I guess it was assumed that Carl Weiss was at the Capitol, armed, and shot Huey Long. And then he himself was shot over 60 times in reaction to his having shot the senator. Right. That was the somewhat common view, at least initially, until... Things were discovered later on, which we are going to get into in much more detail, which is why we're having this call. There's a lot of intriguing things that have been discovered and a lot of new light thrown on this. So Gretchen, what, to your knowledge, was the initial impact on the lives of your grandmother and your father, who at that time was three months old? I think when they heard the news, they were in disbelief. So nobody wanted to believe that this was actually perpetrated by their beloved son, husband, so forth. But what they did is they wound up retreating back to uh, Opelousas, which was the small town where my grandmother was from. She was from a large family. So they kind of hid in the bosom of the Pavi family in um, Opelousas and stayed there for a while until she realized, my grandmother realized with her three-month-old baby that she had to get out of Louisiana because Her family's name was so tainted and there was really no way to escape the villainy. So she left for France. This is a family that had, was very tight knit, very close. No one had really left. My grandfather was the one who was uh, very well-traveled, but she decided to take her son and go to France and seemed like a good place to go. And she kind of stayed there for a while, for several years. Can't remember how old my father was when she left for France. Maybe okay. he was nine months. Maybe he okay. was Carl, did you want to add something to that? My understanding also is that uh, Yvonne received death threats. I think yeah. she, she understood that I have to get out of Louisiana. There's violence being threatened. So she was not comfortable at all. That's, I think, a large reason why she left. And Yvonne was your grandmother. Father lived in France until what age again? I think he was four. And they came back right at the start of World War II. Basically, my father used to tell the story of getting the last boat out uh, of France right before the war broke out. They basically were told they had to leave. My grandmother said she did not want to come back to Louisiana. So she uh, settled in New York, which is why we're New Yorkers, my brother, sister, and I. So did your grandmother ever return to Louisiana to visit with your father? 
they would go back every summer. So that was another story that we heard a lot of is my father uh, taking the train from Manhattan down to Louisiana every summer. And he talks about how this was the best time in his life. He learned to shoot guns and do all the things that country boys did in Louisiana. He was surrounded by aunts and uncles who all kind of swooped him up and tried to pretend that none of this happened. They rarely spoke about uh, Huey Long or the murder. They just wanted him to be there. They really missed having him because he was the only grandchild, um, nephew, son at that point. And so when he came, he was treated like a miniature king is what we always used to say. And he had goats and he had cows and chickens. And he used to say that whenever he got on the train to go back to New York, it was kind of the end of his world. It was really sad. So he loved Louisiana. Christina, did you want to add to that? Yeah. So I think um, it's quite interesting that my, our grandmother did not go with him. She put her very young son on a train by himself, which I know times that's a long time ago, but I think even our father realized kind of recently, that's a very unusual thing to do, to put your five or six-year-old child on a train that took overnight. It was, you know, an overnight train ride. And I have journals that I've just transcribed recently of our father being on this train, sort of like being told by his mother, now make sure you check in with the car man to, you know, to check in and make sure he's watching over you because he was by himself on a train. Why didn't Yvonne go with him? I don't remember. He had to work. I don't know. I think um, she was a different kind of a parent from what we experienced of being children of a father who grew up with no father and sort of like a little bit of an absent mother. So that was sort of the upshot. Like she wanted to live her life in New York City. And I think she was trying to get, she was actually studying and getting her PhD. So she might've been writing her thesis in the summers, but I mean, she had to work too, but she would go to Louisiana, but she wouldn't go for eight weeks. You know, she basically, that was her babysitters were in Opelousas and she was sending him back South to have fun and run around I know from his journals that he was desperate to stay down there. He wanted to be down there as opposed to being the latchkey kid that he was in New York City when he had to go to school and then go back to his apartment and open the door by himself and be by himself. He was definitely alone. But your grandmother obviously felt that it was going to be a good experience for him to be down in Louisiana with the family. It's just that it wasn't something that she wanted to do at the time. Carl, did you want to add to that? I mean, I think that's also part of Yvonne's parenting. She really kind of pushed him along. He was on this fast track and he was bright. He was extremely bright. He was precocious and she moved him right along. He was very independent. He was bright enough to move ahead in grades and he went to college at a young age in large part because she felt like, he, I don't know, I don't know why she pushed him so hard. He was, he was really precocious. He was a couple of three years younger than his peers when he did eventually start college graduated high school at 15 and I noticed in reading recently that so did our grandfather graduated high school at 15. Maybe it was preordained that they graduate high school early. Gretchen, would you like to add something to that? Yeah. My brother was talking about how precocious he was and how young he was and how his mother sort of pushed him along. And one of my favorite stories is the uh, whiz kid story. When my father was living in New York as a small child, he was his mother thought he was smart enough to be on WizKids. She brought him to the auditions and had him audition. She thought he was so smart. He went up against a guy named Joel Kupperman, 
who actually is infamous now for being the smartest whiz kid. But Joel Kupperman beat out dad as the whiz kid. And uh, so he really was a bright little, you know, kind of chubby boy who wore glasses and kind of did his own thing, was alone while his mother was working. But he didn't get onto whiz kids. Joel Kupperman did. He's in the the history books. (laughs) So your dad was a very inquisitive, smart kid. When and how did he first find out what happened to his dad? Well, we all know this story. And my father had been told that his father died in a firearms accident. That's all his mother would tell him. So the story goes that I don't know what year it was, but Life magazine came out and there was a photo of this historical shooting, the event. Um, It's kind of been circulated in lots of places, but it's a picture of my grandfather laying on the ground in his Panama suit. And it was in Life magazine that one year when my father was maybe 12, cover of the magazine. And that's how he learned about his father being killed at the Capitol next to Huey Long. Your father, was he upset with his mother for not telling him what happened or how did he react? Do you know, did he share that with you at all? Any of you? No, he didn't share with us that he was upset, but we know that he was upset. He has talked about it in writing, maybe, that he would have been upset, but he didn't display a lot of emotion as a father. So no, he wouldn't tell us that he was upset. Gretchen, what did your father do with that information? I think like my sister says, he was very, it was very factual. I think he was such an odd child with such an odd upbringing. And he was kind of at the mercy of his mother's whims, really. I think she was a wonderful mother and a wonderful person, but she was really on her own path. I think he knew there was nothing really to do. It was just, I don't know. He never really talked about how he processed that at that age. It was just, this is how I learned. Then we went on. I'm going to go to Carl now. When did the family start to find out about and hear more information about what the family believes actually happened on September 8th, 1935? I wouldn't say it was anything concrete because it wasn't really spoken about. It was just kind of a part of our upbringing. We knew it was something very unusual, something very traumatic. I just, I I personally did not have much, much of a detailed understanding of of what had happened until I kind of did my own research. So I didn't hear it from family. I kind of dug in. You know, I went to Tulane Medical School. I, I didn't know much about it in college, but once I kind of spent some time in New Orleans and my own medical training, I really kind of I wanted to know a whole lot more. That's when I kind of figured out more of the details as far as what had happened that day. But in terms of learning about it as I grew up, it was just kind of in the background. Now, what about your dad? Once he knew the story of what happened to his father, Did he speak to other relatives down in Louisiana to ask them more about what happened? And did he start to question what the standard historical account was of what happened and who shot Huey Long? I'm sure he spoke at length to Tom Ed. I I suspect Tom Ed, my grandfather's younger brother, I'm sure he informed my father about, about what had happened. Gretchen? And I think Tom Ed was the real, Tom Ed, again, was his younger brother who was kind of left behind to pick up the pieces. And I think Tom Ed was the one family member who spent a lot of time trying to decipher all of this, but he was on, you know, the other side of the family who we didn't really see. So when we were kids, we only saw our grandmother's side of the family and our grandmother's side of the family. Really, we didn't talk about it. 
we would tell all kinds of stories. Whenever we came down as children, they would gather around us and we would all celebrate. But this story was definitely not in the forefront. It was something that was kind of hush hush. They didn't try to get to the bottom of anything really. So the Pavi family was the family that you visited with Mm -hmm. and they were storytellers. Yes. But we told lots of happy stories of parties and events. And we did it and tell lots of stories. Just family members and people of characters from the family tree? Characters were valued. You know, just the urban legend. There was a lot of urban legend. And it was a lot of laughter. You know, it was joyous getting together with all the Pavi family. Assassination and tragedy and murder was not, was not brought up at all. They treated us like we were little princes and princesses and we came for a week and they tried to make our stay as happy as possible. And we all sat and told stories and laughed. There was no television. So we just sat around and told stories of what all the characters were up to. What a wonderful memory to have. Christina. Yeah, I think the only way that I can sort of make sense of it is that growing up and living in that environment of possibly being linked to the murder of a very famous senator, world famous senator, would be very difficult for the family. There was some shame, even though I think in the end they knew that he didn't do it. It was just the shame on the family. And I just think they couldn't, they couldn't talk about it. It, it. Like we all said, none of us talked about it. It was horrible. It was awful. They had to live it day in and day out. Our great aunt was a history teacher, actually eighth grade history teacher, who refused to teach um, any part of history that um, happened after 1935. So her students were not treated to anything about Huey Long. So I'm sure she would never mention it in her class. I don't know how many years she taught, maybe close to 30 years. And I think she was able to hurt that part of history for her eighth graders. Understandably, because she was a, a major player in this situation. Recently, I found out that she was actually, had gone to see Long that day to ask for her job back because he had actually, along with trying to get her father, um, gerrymandered out of his judgeship, he had also had her fired from her teaching job. And she loved teaching. So she went to beg for her teaching job back. I just read this in some papers. And he used the slur that is the rumor that um, supposedly he, he made some remark about her family having the wrong kind of blood, let's just say, for a Southern to have in the 30s. And she weeped and she cried and she brought her tears home to her sister's house where her brother-in-law was. So did he hear her crying and feel you know, terrible that his sister-in-law was you know, in so much pain from being fired from her job by long? Was this part of his feeling of why he needed to go to the Capitol that night? Possibly, probably. Um, but the family really very much stands by the fact that he didn't He didn't shoot a gun at Long that night. He probably had words with him. He could have punched him. That's what I've read, that he punched him in the face because he actually repeated the slur to um, our grandfather that night. But once again, getting back to the the premise that the family didn't talk about this, it was a horrible, horrible phase for the family. And that's what we remember is we heard about it. Our father very bluntly told us about it. And there was no processing it. There was no let's have a discussion about it. It was, here it is. This is my life. And let's move on. Gretchen. I think too, when we went to Louisiana, we would we'd sit on that little rock and get our picture taken by the Opelousas uh, daily. And they would put our picture on the front page of the paper. It was kind of a big deal when we came to town. And I don't quite know that I ever understood why. 
I remember one day being in a hardware store when we were little and hearing Marie saying something, our aunt Marie, who was our grandmother's sister saying something like, Oh yes, they're here. That's them. And everyone in the kind of town would sort of know who we were when we came to town, but we really didn't understand what that meant. Now you said that you didn't really see much of the Weiss side of the family, but you did, I think, Carl, you mentioned that you've had, you had conversations with uncle Tom Ed Weiss. Tom, Tom Ed was a, a rheumatologist. He was a quiet, gentle demeanor. He, he was elected as president of the American Rheumatology Association. He was affiliated with Oxner Hospital, and his life pursuit was really to clear his older brother's name. You know, I got to spend time with Tom Ed when I was in med school, and I, I, I came to a greater understanding of uh, the whole situation, really. I got his perspective. And he's such a quiet man, such a decent man, so, so honorable. I mean, you can't not believe him. He's just, it's his heartfelt, it's his heartfelt emotion that his, his little older brother didn't do it. It just couldn't do it, didn't do it. That's not the way it happened. So that was something that I kind of, he didn't say that to me, but I could see it in his expression. I could see it in the way he would, he would you know, reflect and recollect on, on the events of the day, 1935. He lived it. He lived it every day. Would you say that that was a, in contrast to the way your father sort of processed it intellectually. Completely different, completely yeah. different. For Tom, man, it was a heartfelt emotion. And for my dad, yeah, he, he, he wasn't a big emotional expression. That's what Christine and Gretchen were just saying. He didn't, he didn't give us a whole lot of emotion back growing up. It was kind of like, that's, that's his history. And here we are. Now, Carl, I'm going to ask you if you can tell us about what your family, whether it be your, uh, through your uncle or through cousins, through your dad, or just research, what kind of evidence has your family uncovered over the years that would indicate that your grandfather was innocent of shooting Huey Long? Well, that's, it's been difficult to get hard facts. It's been difficult to uncover details. However, there was a forensic pathologist named James Stars, who took an interest in the case. And he spoke to our family and he, was, he wanted to exhume my grandfather's body, which is buried, obviously. And he was told, you're going to disinter the wrong body. You need to go after Huey Long's body. That's, that will tell the story because if there's residual bullets found in Huey Long's body, we can match them with the guns and we can essentially prove the case. But the, uh, the Long family objected to that. So my father was willing to have his father exhumed and studied. So when I was in med school in the early 90s, that happened. That was kind of an interesting scenario. And James Stars, the, the pathologist, the forensic pathologist, he, he was of the belief that there's always facts and objects and evidence. There's always evidence that can be uncovered. And, and lo and behold, he came across a, uh, a handgun that we didn't know existed a 22 caliber gun that was probably the one that my grandfather had in his glove compartment of his car that night. And that was almost the, the proof that was missing. But the gun was recovered. The bullets were, there were six shell casings that were found with the gun. That was in the safe deposit box of a, a family member of the chief of police from Louisiana, from Baton Rouge. The forensics didn't support that this was the missing bullets. The gun itself was, in fact, the missing gun, but the bullets weren't the, uh, the proof of, of, this, of the case. Christina, did you want to say something about that? Right. Um, I was just reading a lot about the exhumation. And I think what 
was definitely found was that he was in a defensive position. I don't know, Carl, if you remember that, but supposedly when they exhumed the body, they could tell that wherever the bullets had hit, you know, all the many bullets, over 60, they could tell from the way that they had hit the bones that he had been in a defensive position. His arms were in front of his face because of the, the ulnar fractures from the bullet fragments. That was one piece of information that came from the examination. So what I've read about what supposedly happened was that your grandfather was on his way home from a house call and stopped by the Capitol building to speak with Senator Long about his father-in-law and the gerrymandering situation. And at that time, he was snubbed a couple times by the senator. Then Senator Long said something to your grandfather. And the official story that came out was that your grandfather shot Senator Long and then the bodyguards in turn fired 61 bullets, killing your grandfather instantly. And Huey Long died two days later on September 10th, 1935. But the evidence that's been rolling out now seems to indicate that there could have been an accident, an accidental killing or shooting of Huey Long from bullets that ricocheted off the wall that were fired at your grandfather. So is that Sort of what's rolling out in the evidence, Carl? Yeah, the ballistics would have proven or disproven whether the grandfather was an alleged assassin or an innocent bystander. That's it in a nutshell. My grandfather was returning from a house call or preparation for surgery the next day. It was a Sunday night, and he lived just a few blocks from the Capitol, and the parking lot was full. He, put his, he parked his car in the back row. And for whatever reason, he stopped at the Capitol that night. And as you said, he probably wanted to talk with Huey uh, Long and address his family's situation. He's five foot eight, maybe 135 pounds, soaking wet, wearing a white Panama suit. And he walked in and everybody was screened, I think, for weapons. Uh, or to some extent, there was guards all around. So he, he was standing in the hallway and Huey Long snubbed him and maybe insulted him after walking by him several times. And at that point, he, we believe, in our hearts, <laughs> in our soul, we believe he punched him in the mouth. And at that point, all the bodyguards were the only ones on the scene. They, they were the only ones to witness. They were the only ones who could have confirmed or denied what happened. And they emptied their guns. And one or more likely two bullets ricocheted around the hallway and um, probably ended up intra-abdominally in Huey Long. And Huey, at that point, ran down some back stairs. At that point, there was somebody on those stairs. Now it becomes hearsay. And the person on that stairs pointed, asked him, because he was holding his, his side, Huey was holding his, his flank. And he said, what's that bruise on your lip? And he said, that's where he punched me. And Huey Long continued on down the stairs and was taken to a local hospital where he was operated on some hours later in an operating room theater that was described as a carnival because all his bodyguards were in the room. And on his way into anesthesia, Huey said, I'll do all the talking, nobody say anything. And there was a, a nurse who recounted her findings. She was in the OR that day, or that night rather. And she had said there was a bruise on his lip and that's evidence of some kind of trauma. That's our understanding of my grandfather's role. He wasn't an alleged assassin. He wasn't armed with a gun. He didn't enter the state capitol with a premeditated plan. He did have a 22 caliber gun in his car and his glove compartment box. And sometime later that night or the next day where Tom Ed went back to recover the car, the car had been moved, the glove compartment had been opened, and the gun was missing. So that 
that's telling. That means that somebody entered the vehicle and uh, rummaged through his possessions. And as the several of the bodyguards recounted, maybe a decade or two later, they gave an affidavit of their side of the story. They said they had a gun in their possession that they threw down uh, that was a gun that they found at a gambling raid and it didn't fire properly. It was broken. So they realized they had to go find a different item. So at that point, they went into his car, found a 22 caliber Browning that he had purchased in Europe, and they used that as the plant. So that's my understanding of the firearms chain of command, basically. And then that gun disappeared. And that's the gun that Professor Stars found in the safe deposit box decades later. Did your dad take possession of that gun? Was he able to get the gun back? Yes, he did. He did. And there was hope that the ballistic studies would confirm or deny the story, and they didn't pan out. So basically, he donated the gun uh, to the Smithsonian and left it at that and then moved on. Gretchen, did you want to add to that? That's the story that that I had always heard. But this story, we didn't hear till much later, as Carl says, basically when you know, we were in our 20s, that the there was more of an evolution of what uh, what the events were. Before that, it was just the simple story that he probably didn't do it. And, you know, this is what happened. But those details came out much later. Christina? So I think it's of note to say that this gun was found in the safe deposit box of the police chief at the time's daughter. That's a little fishy. And obviously, the police chief had died and had willed it or given it to his daughter, who I believe was named Mabel Billings. But my father had to sue in court to get it back, and he did get it back. It's just amazing, the corruption that was going on and the lack of attention to a fair sort of inquest, you know, all along from the beginning. There was just no no desire to really get to the bottom of what happened. And that's Huey's legacy is this is the story, and this is what happened. And he died, and they continued to, to follow his rules after he died. Even when my father went to visit with Russell Long, who was then, I think, a senator, Russell Long said that, you know, that you may want to find out the truth, but our truth is that your father was the killer. And so they were cordial to each other, but Russell Long wouldn't aid in the investigation. And so I think when we went back for the 75th anniversary, many years later, all of the Longs were there and we were all in one room kind of recounting how, what we knew of the event and the Longs all said, you know, we, we know this story is that your grandfather killed our Huey Long, and that's the story we're sticking by, but we respect your decision to try to uncover the truth. And I remember um, someone very, I can't remember his name, Christina, but he, I remember he came up to us and said, I think that's very admirable that your dad is here trying to defend his father's name. And uh, I would do the same thing if I were, if I were him. It's very admirable. Mm. And that kind of stuck with me. Now, just for clarification for our listeners, Russell Long was the son of son, yeah. Senator Huey Long. Yes. Yes, Christina. He was uh, 15 years old when his father died. So he has much stronger memories, obviously, than our father would have, who was only three months. But I read about their meeting recently. And actually, Russell Long also met with Tom Ed. And they had, he had a really nice meeting with our uncle Tom Ed, great uncle Tom Ed and his wife, Catherine. And he said just what Gretchen had said that, you know, I don't put any blame on your family. Um, you're, you're, you're lovely people. All we know is something happened. And, you know, my father is dead. And, you know, obviously, you, Carl Weiss Jr., had nothing to do with this. You were three months old. But he agreed, you know, in a very polite way to disagree 
like Carl said, they believe that this is the story. This is the easiest story for them to tell and understand. So it works for them, I guess. Carl, you had something to add? Just, you know, the context of guards' behavior, they were told not to not to cooperate. So for some days, I don't know if it was three days, four days, five days, they did not respond. They did not provide any information. They didn't show up for the deposition or inquiry or they, they didn't reveal any more information. I mean, their behavior is telling. Our grandfather's behavior was telling. He did not behave like somebody who was an assassin and all the bodyguards behaved like they had something to hide. And it just, it's part of the story. It's a part of the narrative. It's just, they did not comply with the investigation. The police chief did everything he could to alter the investigation. They wouldn't let anybody speak about their findings. It was just, they took the gun away, took the murder weapon away. They rummaged through the car. They did everything they could to make it look like there's one man, one gun, one bullet. That's what they did. They committed to telling to all the events unfolding to support that narrative, which was manufactured so they could maintain power. I seem to remember reading about a report. I don't know if it was an affidavit that was signed, but it was, I think, one of the former bodyguards who pointed out to another person that, I forget the name of the bodyguard, but he said, he's the man who killed Huey Long. Joe Messina and Murphy Roden were two bodyguards that were a few decades later riding in the backseat of uh, the squad car. And they were just talking. I think the squad car was driving for some time. And I don't remember who was driving. Whoever authored the affidavit just documented their conversation. And they spoke for quite some time. And Murphy Roden or Joe Messina, one of them, had said, I killed my hero. He alone was my hero, and I, I accidentally killed him. And that's what was driving the car. That's what they documented in their affidavit. What would we say is the reason why, other than the embarrassment of accidentally killing somebody you were protecting, was there any sort of a political advantage to blaming it on your grandfather? Clearly, it was the, the long machine. One gun, one bullet. Uh, one man, one gun, one bullet would have allowed the, the, the long legacy to continue. They stayed in power, basically. That ensured that he had control of all the uh, policymaking and legislature in Louisiana was, was under his control. If that was the story, if he was assassinated, then he would stay in power. Would you say that Tom Ed was the most outspoken advocate for exonerating your grandfather? Uh, I would, but he, he was never outspoken. He was just committed. He was just quietly and gently and just completely committed to clearing his brother's name. That was his life's mission, really, other than being a physician. There were a couple of films that were made. One was on Unsolved Mysteries back in, I think, the early 90s, and also a documentary called 61 Bullets that dealt with this new evidence. Do you know how those two films came into being, how they materialized, what kind of evidence or who was driving those two film endeavors? Christina, do you want to start? The Unsolved Mysteries came around after the exhumation. I'm not really sure how they contacted my father, but probably much like you found out about the story, they thought it was an interesting story. You know, it was a TV production and Gretchen and I were actually involved in it, as was my husband. I think that was 1993, I could be wrong. 61 Bullets was produced by my father's cousin's daughter, just within the past five years. And she's also named after her grandmother. So she's also named Yvonne. So she was very interested in the story. 
and put this production together when she was basically a budding producer. She wanted to get to the bottom of the story. And so she put together a team and did a lot of really good research. I watched it. I actually watched it twice and it was very compelling evidence. Carl. I mean, the point I think of Yvonne's documentary, 61 Bullets, is it's the Pavi side of the story, which really does not get told. And there's a well-known book by T. Harry Williams. I think it's a Pulitzer Prize winning recollection of all the events around Huey Long's murder. And it interviewed some 200, maybe even more, more than that. They were all the long perspective. The Pavi family was not even interviewed, consulted, contacted in any way for a Pulitzer Prize winning book on Huey Long's demise. Interesting. Gretchen. I remember one scene from our cousin Yvonne's film, 61 Bullets, where our Aunt Ida, who is the sister-in-law to our grandfather, is starting to talk about the shooting. She's being interviewed by her granddaughter, who is Yvonne, the producer of the film. And she's being, Ida's being interviewed and she's talking about the murder. And then suddenly my father walks into the room and she says, shh, and he's a grown man. But I remember shushing, saying, shh, let's not tell the story. He's right here. But at that point, our father was, you know, well into his sixties. And as we all said, he was not very emotive. And it was funny to me to watch her trying to shield him from the information as a grown man. And I sensed that they all did that for most of his life, tried very hard to shield this little boy who'd lost basically everything when his father was killed. I remember that scene in the documentary. Mm -hmm. Carl? That was one thing Tom Ed had said to me, because he's reflecting on, on my father as a young man. He's like, if there was ever a young man who needed a father, a father figure, a father presence in his life, it was your dad because he was just, he was a force to be reckoned with. He was super bright, super smart, super, he was a risk taker. He had planes, trains, automobiles there. He was, he was untethered. Basically he would, he had a lot of, a lot of interests, a lot of zest for life, I would say. And he had plane accidents. He had car accidents. He had boat accidents, but somehow he, he got through all of that. And we were right, you know, we were in the car and the plane with him at the time somehow. So he was a, unregulated young man. He needed a father figure and Tom had conveyed that to me. So he was, he was a character in his own right. You know, I read an article about your dad a few years ago, because I think one of my reasons for being interested in this story was that my grandfather died on September 10th, 1935, which is the same day that Huey Long died. Being a history buff, I was researching what was in the news when my grandfather died. And I saw that Huey Long had died at 4.10 a.m. on September 10th, 1935. My grandfather, on his death certificate, he died at 4.10 p.m. on September 10th, 1935. I started reading about Huey Long, and I started reading about what he was like. And then I read about the quote, unquote, assassination. And I found an article that talked about your dad and how he had found out about his father and what he believed actually happened. And when I started to think about doing something for this podcast on this particular story, I found out your father had passed away and I was able to find the three of you through that article, through the obituary, I believe it was. I'm so excited to be able to hear the story from the family, from Dr. Carl Weiss Sr.'s 
three grandchildren. And it is such an amazing story. I want to ask, Carl, you talked about it a little bit about what you found out sort of on your own, or you found out from your dad, but you did your own research. How about you, Gretchen? How did, what did you do with the information when you found out about it? Do you remember when you found out about this history in your family? Well, I'm the youngest. So I, I think I found out through Christina doing a report in class. And I remember we were living on St. Paul's place. So I was like, I was less than 12. I didn't really understand. It, to me, it was almost like, that's why they take our picture when we go to Louisiana. And that's why, but I didn't really, it took so long for all of the details to come out. There wasn't really a moment when I said, oh, okay, I understand. It took so long to understand it all because it was so convoluted. And, and our dad would tell stories about how um, he wanted to you know, walk in his father's footsteps and do some of these things. But I didn't really understand the magnitude of it all until probably I started doing my own research as well when I um, started my um, kind of novel that I've been working on for 20 years. But um, there was no one moment for me. Well, I want to know as soon as that novel is written, I want to know when, because I want to read it. Really funny stories. <laughs> well, you know, this podcast is about stories. That's what we're doing right now. We're telling stories. And it sounds like your family, at least the Pavi side of the family, was all about telling stories, but happy and funny stories. It just mm -hmm. so happens that there's this one as well. And it's a story that has to be told because, you know, sometimes what's in the history books gets written by who's ever in charge at the time. And sometimes the facts get glazed over or ignored. Carl? That's why history gets rewritten every 50 years. That's why it's always good to research. Christina? So I felt a lot of pressure doing this show, I have to admit, because I feel like our father always tried to stand up for his father. That was sort of like his life's goal. Even though he didn't do a really good job of emoting about it, he definitely wanted to do things. He wanted to write a book about his life. He knew that he was an unusual person. He knew that he lived an unusual life. And you know, there's been a lot about this over the years, so much, so much that we had to research on our own and find out about ourselves. And so much that is incorrect. Just little things like for whatever anniversary this past September, is it September 8th? That's the date, right, of the death? That's the date of, the, of Huey Long's, um, he was shot on the 8th and your grandfather was killed on the 8th of September, yeah. Right, so I, I live near Boston and my paper of record is the Boston Globe. And every large anniversary they decide to print in that um, This Day in History blurb um, something about our father being the assassin of Huey Long on, on that day. Grandfather, sorry. So I feel like it's my job to fight for my family's good name. So I will write every year, every time I see it or someone tells me about it, I write about it and say, you know, that's not proven. And I, I would watch your tone. And, I, and in the letters that I've been reading and preparing for this podcast, that's what our great-grandfather did about his own son. He rejected every time that people tried to say that his son was the assassin. He would write letters. I mean, he was a very kind, gentle soul as well. He wasn't outspoken, but he didn't like to have his son's name dragged through the mud. They never believed that he did it in their own quiet way. They, they went about their lives living in Louisiana in this you know, tumultuous time trying to fight for their son's good name. So I feel like that's what we're doing. We're fighting for our family's good name. And we thank you so much for taking the time to, to ask us about this because we don't really talk about it. As, as you've heard, we don't really talk about it. And 
most people who hear the story are like, huh, obviously he didn't shoot him. It's, it's clear. I mean, anyone who watched 61 Bullets with me, my friends who've seen it, are like, it's overwhelmingly clear. You don't have to have the bullets to, to show that he didn't do it. But still, there's people who like to stick to their um, stories. So we appreciate it. Well, I just look at the fact and I think, okay, so it, it's very possible that your grandfather went to say, hey, look, I, you've said some pretty bad things. I really want to talk to you, but I'm, I want to talk to you in a sane, rational way, Senator. And, you know, he was in the middle of house call. He's got surgery. Maybe the next day he's got a baby at home. He's probably going to be up half the night anyway. And he thought, let me just stop by and let me get some FaceTime with this guy. And it is possible that Senator Long said something that was worthy of, uh, of your grandfather giving him a pop to the lip, but that could be the extreme of what your grandfather meant to do, but he gave him a pop to the lip perhaps. And that triggered the mass shootings from the security guard. And I don't know, it sounds to me that if he had a long at a team of security guards who were there, they were probably on edge. I read that there were some threats, I think that were, were made against long. They were probably hypersensitive and here somebody's taking a swing at their charge and the gun started blazing. And when you have 61 bullets flying all around on marble walls, I don't, I'm not a ballistic specialist, but I'd say there's very likelihood that somebody else could get hit by one of those bullets. And it's very feasible. And again, I think one of the strongest pieces of evidence, other than the affidavits, your grandfather's moved rummaged through a car and the missing gun found many years later in the police chief's daughter's safe deposit box is the lack of a really strong motive or any indication that your grandfather was willing to throw away his family, his life, his medical practice, family's good name, all because he got riled up about a political situation. I know Politics can rile people up to bad things, but it certainly doesn't sound like your grandfather fit that mold at all. He had too much to lose. Christina, Carl, and Gretchen, I think it's important to ask you how each of your lives were impacted by the family legacy. Not just what happened to your grandfather, but how you were affected by who your father was because of losing his father. Can I start with Christina? Well, that's very interesting because as you, we've intimated, we had a very unusual father. And our mother used to say it was because he was an only child and because of the coddling that clearly took place by his extended family in Louisiana. And the fact that he didn't have his own father as a role model, it impacted us. It impacted us a lot. He was a great provider. He was an amazing person. He was wild and crazy and a daredevil. He didn't have the traits of your standard father, though. So that part was, um, that part we didn't really get. And also he was a dad in, we were all born in the 60s. So, you know, fathers today are different anyway. But for a father, even of his time, he was unusual. And I think you can chalk that up to the fact of his upbringing. I mean, you can't deny it that a person who grew up the way he did would have a hard time um, necessarily relating to his own children, which I think that he, he had some struggles with that. He did well. You know, we all love our father and he was, he was an excellent provider and just an all around fun person to be with. But 
there was there were some things I would say there were some issues with someone who found out that his father was you know a murder victim and that his mother hid from that her whole life and that everyone around him close to him didn't want to discuss it with him that leaves some marks I would say sure thank you for that Christina about Carl I mean I completely agree he wasn't you know the father figure wasn't the the emotional support system wasn't there, but at the same time, he was a, he was an interesting man in every way. I mean, when you talk to his friends from med school, I remember a friend of his for 50 years at his funeral, he just said, I never had a crossword with him, and we went everywhere. And, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, that's just different from my experience, but at the same time, he was a character. He was just unregulated. He left no stone unturned. He was an adventure seeker. And he loved airplanes, and he loved travel, and he loved firearms, and he loved experiences. And uh, we were in a lot of situations that I think most families probably would not be in because of, of the, some of those interests that he had. I remember being in an airplane when I was probably 10, and the daredevil you know, pilot left me in the right front seat, with, and the door flew open. But unfortunately, oh. I, was bu- I was buckled in, so that worked out well. <laughs> I was I was in a helicopter with him flying backwards and flying around Long Island Sound. And at, at a later date, I said to his helicopter uh, instructor, I took him aside. I said, would, would you ever fly in a helicopter with my dad? He's like, unhesitatingly, absolutely not. And so I was like, <laughs> interesting. I wish I knew that. But I don't know. He was he was a character and a character in a good way uh, as a father in some ways. Just as Christina was saying, it was, it was very unusual, but uh, he, was, he was loved. He was loved by his family. He was loved by his community, but he, uh, I don't think he ever reconciled his own upbringing, but I don't think most people could in that situation. Under those circumstances. Thank you, Carl. How about you, Gretchen? Well, and I have the same sort of stories. I remember my father, when we lived in the suburbs, used to shoot squirrels out of the trees because that's what they did in Opelousas. And it was just highly unusual. You know, all the people would gather around and go, oh, there's Dr. Weiss. He's shooting squirrels out of the trees. And he'd give me the tails and I'd put them on my bicycle handlebars. I'd have little (laughs) squirrel tails. And he was kind of a, he was into the shock, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a shock jock, but he was funny and fun and people loved to be around him. We had lots of boating, you know, situations where he'd think he could take his little boat out and out on the sea and we'd get lost or in in trouble. But he just kind of he thought he was invincible. He was bright enough to get himself out of lots of situations. And everyone wanted to hang out with our father. Everybody kind of wanted to get a piece of him Um, from people in Louisiana to his, you know, medical uh, people he worked with in medicine and to our neighbors. Everybody kind of was a little bit in awe of him. And I have a story, I don't know if you all remember, I don't know who was there, but I remember being in Florida a few years ago, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, visiting uh, mom and dad, and they lived in a golf community where lots of their New York friends also lived. And we were sitting at a burger place um, eating dinner. My husband was there and my two kids were there. And there was a man sitting at the bar who we didn't really know, we couldn't see him. But we were all kind of, uh, my mom, my dad, my husband, and my two kids and I were sitting at the table eating. And we kind of overheard this man telling a story. He was talking to the bartender and he was telling the story actually of our grandfather. And we heard him saying, yeah, can you believe it? And the guy was shot 61 times. And we kind of all looked at each other and thought, is he talking about what we think he's talking about? And actually then at one point, my father made eye contact with him. He knew the man because he was from our hometown. 
but it was so unusual that this man was telling the story of our grandfather to the bartender while we were sitting behind an earshot. So it was kind of those sorts of things sort of happened every so often where people would say, yeah, there's Dr. Weiss. He's the son of the guy who was accused of assassinating Huey Long. My father would kind of go along with, you know, that's me. But those sorts of things happened and we kind of, you know, we're all a little miffed by it, but we lived in this kind of odd world where stories about Huey Long and the assassination came up every once in a while. And I think it affected us in so much that we didn't grow up in Louisiana. You know, we were all, we all grew up in, you know, far removed from the South. And I live in Colorado and I run into many people from Louisiana and they always ask me, oh, so you're from Louisiana. I say, yes, my entire family lives there except me. And inevitably the conversation comes up that, why did you leave? And there's the story why we left. Do any of you ever go back there? Have you ever thought of maybe going down there and seeing some extended family or just visiting the area again? So I'm in proud possession of all the ashes of all the family members. I, I think they're in my dining room in different urns. We all go back. We do go back from time to time. We have very close family down there, but we, ha- we have one more trip to go bring back grandfather's ashes to bury dad's ashes and even mom's ashes. So we've got a trip coming up. So your grandfather's remains were not reinterred at the cemetery in Louisiana at the time? No. And this is another story. Um, Our father put them in a very plain brown box that maybe he made. And it has, I think, masking tape and it might say remains on it. You know, that's that's as as emotional as we get around here. So I didn't I didn't think that they should be thrown away. I'm surprised that they haven't been in the past. But so I do have them. And I went back to bring my family back, I think, um, last spring. And we actually stopped into the Capitol. And the same woman from the 61 Bullets, who is showing the school kids around, Mm -hmm. the same woman was there and I could hear her voice. And I signed my name in the register. And I think I may have said to her like, ah, yes, hi, I'm Gretchen, Gretchen Weiss. You know, I used my maiden name because it might have meant something. And I think she just looked at me like, didn't register, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we did go back to the Capitol and walk in. And I showed my kids the marble where the bullets had ricocheted off the marble. I think all three of you have been been to where your grandfather was was shot. Did it stir any emotion in you, or is it just more curiosity or something else, Carl? No, it's it was surreal. It definitely stirred emotion. Just uh, it just made you reflect and just try to imagine. It just kind of made me revisit the trauma that my dad must have experienced and live with. It, it was just all there. I could just, I could almost reimagine the whole scenario, the whole scene. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was an emotional thing. I wasn't, it was, it was definitely something that I, we, we all needed to do, I think, just to, to get a sense of what had happened. Yeah. And I think also talking about the Carl Austin Weiss name, you know, Carl, my brother's Carl Austin Weiss, the third, his son is Carl Austin Weiss, the fourth. And there's another Carl Austin Weiss who our mother um, gave birth to a fourth child who a third, actually, I guess it was a third child who was also Carl Austin Weiss. So it was kind of this name that kind of had, has this big legacy. And Carl, you are also a physician, like your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. Yep. I'm a fourth generation surgeon. I mean, I, I built a lot of models with my dad. We did a lot of things with our hands. I think I did a little better than he did. I think he was a little bit impatient, but uh, I could I could see how how he worked. Uh, yeah, and I remember asking one of his uh, his partners, like, "What kind of a surgeon was my dad? How, how did he do?" And they said, "When he was focused, he was among the best." 
when he was focused. And he stopped operating a little bit early. He had other interests. And Christina, what's your livelihood? What do you do? What interests you? So I um, ended up majoring in French because of my father. So I took up the French language because of him. And we used to talk about our mother behind her back. My father and I would do that. And she always knew that we were talking about her. But I went to live in France. And, you know, I was interested in France because of my father. And it was a connection that we had. I'm a middle school teacher. But and I think my fa- our father always said that he wanted to be a teacher. But as Carl <laughs> hinted at, he was very impatient. I don't think he really could have uh, managed teaching so well. He was better at sort of lecturing. <laughs> lecture, lecture was his mode, I think. He tried to teach us all Greek and Latin. We didn't really learn it. He also tried to teach all of us French. I didn't learn French from my father because he was notoriously a terrible teacher. He was just so darn smart. You know, the smart ones can't really teach so well. Um, but I think that's the legacy is the interest in France. I get that from him. Terrific. Gretchen, other than being a, an author. I am also a teacher. I'm a college professor. I teach at a local college in Durango. But my father once told me when I was little, he said he didn't want to talk to me until I could, he didn't uh, engage with me until I learned to talk because it was just really nothing to do. There's nothing to do with me until I could talk. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't help but think when I was listening to all of you tell me about your dad, that he not only lived his life to the fullest, but he, he seemed to live extra for the life that his father didn't get to live didn't live a, a frightened, timid life, as you might expect someone might have. No, he went for it. Yeah, he was no holds barred. You know, he definitely lived out loud. Well, I want to thank all three of you for taking time out in your schedules. You're all very busy. This has just been a really wonderful story, and I'm not done reading about this. And I want to, I actually want to watch 61 Bullets again, because my kids are, uh, pretty interested in history as well. And they've been asking me about this and I want to watch it with them because I think it's so important for us to study history and not all the events that we've read about happen the way that we were told. So it's always good to do the research, keep an open mind and really look at the evidence. What's the real evidence? I think it is a wonderful tribute when I heard that the Long family respected now, these are these are descendants of Huey Long, but that they respected your right and your desire to, and your father's, to defend your grandfather, his father. And even though they had a different opinion, that they were willing to, to understand why you were doing that. And I did watch a video from 2010 from C-SPAN that was part of the Huey Long Symposium. In it, your dad gave a presentation from the Weiss family viewpoint, and your father stood there for, I think, an hour without notes, and he told his whole side of the story from the Weiss Weiss family side, and uh, he didn't miss a beat, and it was very compelling, and I know that, from what I heard, that the Long family representatives who were standing there actually stood up and applauded him after he spoke. So it was nice to see that that mutual respect that the families have for each other, uh, despite the tragedy that happened 85 years ago. On that note, I want to thank you again. I hope you all have a wonderful day. And Gretchen, I'm looking forward to that novel, yeah. <laughs> book, book of stories. Right I'm sorry. I'll get right on it.
get right on it. Carl and Christina, thank you again. And I hope that you, you and your family stay nice and safe and healthy and have a great day. Thank you very thank you, much. James. Bye, sisters. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.